0: dot com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed
1: Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless and welcome to the State of the Union podcast. We look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This week, uh, we'll be talking statues. We'll be talking, of course, the U.S. men's national team as they gear up for this next window of three games in World Cup qualifying. We'll take a real quick lap around Europe uh, for a roundup there. True detective, high school soccer, water skiing, and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light david mossy a soccer savant and a fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire mossy how are you doing on this wednesday october 6th and before you answer if you are uh uh, you you know if you are watching this uh when it comes to our podcast here you will recognize very very quickly that uh, something is different we are both on the Road. I come to you from the great city of Austin, Texas, and my good friend David Mossy is over there in New York visiting his family. How are you doing, my friend?
2: I am doing great. I was thinking about this. In the nearly four-year history of this podcast, if you remove the Moscow and Paris shows that we did when we were covering World Cups in those places, this might be the first time that you and I are in different places but both not in L.A.
1: Yeah. I mean, so we both kind of uh, called some audibles. You see like that uh, American football reference there. Uh, it's, it's that type of week, though. You, uh, you uh, said, hey, listen, I'm going to go visit my family, which is great. I'm so happy that you get a chance to, uh, to see them, uh, especially in, this, in these times that we, uh, that we live in. I can see your, uh, where are you, in your uh, old house where you grew up? That is correct. In my dad's office. Now, did your parents keep your uh, room uh, the way it was or did they quickly move everything out? Uh, no, they kept the room.
2: So. Uh, oh my goodness! Nice what people? There.
1: What people wouldn't give for the opportunity to just have a glimpse of what David Mossy's childhood <laughs> bedroom looks like? <laughs> oh my goodness! I, I, uh, you know, I said, I said, listen, um, we're not, we're not working this week in terms of the U.S. Uh, national team. Our friends at ESPN are televising uh, this game on Thursday here in Austin, and then obviously. We're going to talk much more about these games. But I said, you know what? I'm going to get on a plane. I'm going to go out. Something was drawing me to it. And so I am here in Austin in, a, in, in the only capacity that, uh, um, you know, that that one should be in ultimately, and that is as a fan. So I'm just going to go to the game. I'm going to enjoy myself. Hopefully I'm there to cheer on our U.S. team as they get a three points here. They're playing against uh, Jamaica. As I said, we'll talk more about that uh, in a second. You watch anything interesting, Mossy, lately? I did. Uh, A few days ago, I watched the highly anticipated
2: Sopranos prequel movie, the Tony Soprano origin story. It's called The Many Saints of Newark. I thought it was just okay, pretty good, but nothing special. but the interesting thing about it is that it's spawned a lot of conversation about The Sopranos in the media because a lot of people are going back and re-watching it. A new generation of fans is watching it for the first time. There were all sorts of articles in the papers the last few days examining the cultural significance of this show and what made it so popular. And I kept thinking about you the whole time because for folks that are new to this podcast, that is one of your more <laughs> controversial takes. Uh, you think The Sopranos is complete garbage, the most overrated television show you've ever seen in your life your life.
1: It was. So who knows? Maybe I'll love this uh, this prequel, uh, if you will. And it's just a set movie. I, I I have not watched it, but I, I know what exactly we you're talking about. There's a lot of people talking about it. Is it good? Isn't good? Do you have to be steeped in the Sopranos lore to really appreciate it? Or if you are steeped in it, do you do you not appreciate it because you don't think it went far enough? Anyway, I will watch it and we'll compare notes uh, in a little bit. I did watch something that I think you were a part of. And I went back, um, the, uh, the series True Detective, three different Episodes, or no, three different seasons, three different, very, very different stories, eight episodes each. Um, I had not, it had not, it had only come on my radar because you had talked about it, and then I immediately ignored it uh, when you brought it up. But uh, you were absolutely right. This is this is phenomenal. I will say that, it, and this is not you know anything that that should be a surprise as it as it, as the seasons went on, and they're they're completely not only brand new stories, but completely different casts, even different time periods. Um, It got, it got less and less. So that first season with Woody Harrelson, um, you know, I thought and uh, and Matthew McConaughey, you know, here we are in Austin right here, that was that was incredible. And as they went on, interesting stories, wonderful actors, but it was it never quite lived up to that first uh, that first season. But absolutely, you were completely right. a hundred percent that it is it is worth your time. All three seasons are worth your time. But if you're just gonna pick one, I definitely think the first.
2: That's interesting, though, because seasons one and three are highly regarded. Season two, that, Colin Farrell, Vince Vaughn season is considered to be a train wreck,
1: but you actually found some enjoyment there? I did. um, You know, I do think that uh, that Vince Vaughn, you know, of the of the actors that we associate with comedy. okay, the ones that try to step out of that, I think the least successful would be somewhat not that he didn't you know, not that he didn't get opportunities, but it's when I see it it's, it's the hardest one I have, I think is, 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 is Vince Vaughn. And, he, and look, he plays a complete thug. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not giving anything away. So yeah, that one, I think it was just miscasting to be quite honest with you. Um, but I did, I, I was interested in it and there are some recurring types of themes that do kind of go through all three, uh, seasons and, um, you know, the, you know, the whole tropes, uh, when it comes to cops and the alcohol involved and what they do and what they don't do and you know how they skirt the rules here or there you can get all of that but anyway it was um, it, it was interesting. And so I do. Uh, I do recommend it. Um, we're going to talk more about Ted Lasso later on. So I'll save my Ted Lasso stuff for later on in the show. Now, if you are listening to this, it's probably Thursday, October seventh, which is actually the day of the U.S. Uh, men's National Team game. We uh, I, we apologize that this uh, that this pod is coming out so late. You will know in your feed uh, if you do follow us um, and subscribe to us that there was a show earlier this week with the great Jen Cooper, and we discussed the situation when it comes to what's going on uh, with the nwsl and all the trials and tribulations and just the let's be honest the shit show uh to use her, <laughs> her words and at completely uh, appropriate words of what's going on when it comes to the nwsl um so go back and and, and if you if you get a chance do listen to it because she's really really smart and i think she does a good job of just giving an idea of what's going on and and maybe even uh, what's to come we're not going to deal with that on uh, on this pod we're going to concentrate a lot on Uh, on the U.S. uh, men's national team qualifying, which, as I said, by the time you listen to it, will be underway, probably. But uh, we do have something to kick it off with. And it is more of an evergreen type of topic. And it happened this past weekend. Moss, you ready to light this candle? Let's do it. All right, as you know, uh, each and every week we kick the pod off with Alexi Lalas' State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this, and I'm going to bring it to you from a very different place. This past weekend, LA Galaxy legend Landon Donovan was honored with his own statue outside the LA Galaxy Stadium. Now, he joins former teammate David Beckham as Galaxy players to have statues erected. It's quite an honor, and certainly well-deserved given the incredible impact that Landon Donovan had as a player for the Galaxy. But if there's one thing that the last couple of years have taught us, it's that statues can be tricky. There are real humans behind those statues, with all our human flaws, so we can only hope that they stand the test of time. But, if we are going to have LA Galaxy statues, then let's be honest. Kobe Jones should have been the first, and that he wasn't is a little absurd. I'm sure he will get his statue at some point, better late than never. But he deserves to have been the first. Here's a man that embodied his team, the only MLS team he ever played for. From the team's birth in 1996, for 12 seasons and countless personal and team awards and trophies. He is synonymous with the Los Angeles Galaxy. History is written and rewritten. Names are remembered and forgotten. Time can illuminate and obscure. Statues are put up and torn down. Kobe Jones's LA Galaxy legacy is not in danger. He remains a legend, the original legend. And while I'm sure he will genuinely celebrate and congratulate Landon Donovan on his honor with the maturity and deference that we have come to expect from Kobe Jones, I can also imagine there's a part of Kobe Jones that wonders why, and so do I. All right. Through the magic of technology, Mossy, uh, I recorded that State of the Union back in Los Angeles, and it was obviously after the weekend. And, you know, this uh, this this concept, I guess my first question to you is this this concept before we get into the, uh, the you know, uh, Landon and Kobe and David and all the different things in general, how do you feel about athletes having statues?
2: Well, you mentioned athletes. There's a whole larger conversation in this sure. country right now. And about I mentioned that any, in the state of the any Union, sort yeah. of figure, yeah. uh, and I'm I'm for it. I have no problem uh, erecting statues to honor people who who. Achieved great things, and and, you know the 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 issue you raised is: what if later on we come to find out something negative about the person? uh, Does that uh, you know diminish their reputation to the point where then you have to turn around and take down the statue? And you know my 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 criteria there has been: you know if uh, we're honoring somebody. In spite of their sins, I think the statue can stay. If we're honoring somebody because of their sins, in other words, if the thing they do wrong strikes at the very heart of what you are honoring them for, then is where you have to rethink things. So uh, that's sort of where I come down on that.
1: Yeah, and look, and that's this is not a I'm not making a case for um, you know for, for not having statues uh, for for people and. Um, You know they're fine, and whatever you're honoring them for, that's why they're being honored. And look, as I said in the State of the Union, time moves on and things and things change. When it comes to this, and I want to be very, very clear because I know some people are going to say, "Oh, you're just poo-pooing on Landon Donovan," and all that's that's not the case at all. Anybody that has actually spent any time listening to me will know that I'm a huge champion of Landon Donovan. For me, he is arguably the best American soccer player, man or woman, that ever represented the United States and that ever played soccer for the United States or in the United States. And certainly from an MLS perspective, it's undeniable his impact when it comes to both the league and certainly when it comes to the Los Angeles Galaxy. And so, as I said in the State of the Union, Landon Donovan, as far as I'm concerned, if we're doing statues, absolutely 100% deserves a statue. My beef is how this, you know, the, the, as I said, how this all came about and why Kobe wasn't the first one. And look, I, I understand that there's, there's business considerations and publicity considerations and and all of that. By the way, Landon should have been before David Beckham. David Beckham was the first. Uh, Landon Donovan is the second, and I fully expect that Kobe Jones is going to get a, a a statue. But my my point in arguing Kobe Jones is who he who he was, what he represented, and the fact that this is you know a team that is hopefully going to stand the test of time well beyond not just my career or Kobe's career, uh, but our lifetimes, okay? And he was there from the start. And not only that, in an age where we started to see that transition of players going to team, to team, to team, and not representing one team, and very, very few of them representing one team— he was the exception, as I said, 12 years at the Los Angeles Galaxy. And I just think it was tailor-made to have somebody like him that meant so much and was so representative of this club, yes, when it was started out, yes, in the early days, to, to have him have that honor, all right? And it wouldn't have taken anything away from David Beckham. It wouldn't have taken away anything from, uh, from Landon Donovan. And it's just a little weird now to go back and and do it because I just I, I when I think of Kobe Jones I think of the Los Angeles Galaxy and I think of the establishment of Major League Soccer and I'm not saying that Landon Donovan didn't carry this league through at some incredibly difficult times and as I said doesn't deserve that uh, doesn't deserve that statue but you know anyway uh, thoughts on that before we before we move on
2: it's interesting when you think about the Galaxy's history. There's this early iteration of the Galaxy that went to four MLS Cups in the first seven years of the league and won it in 2002 after losing the first three. They were sort of the Buffalo Bills of MLS Cup in those early years of the league. And then they also won the CONCACAF Champions Cup in 2000. Uh, The Galaxy are the last MLS team to be CONCACAF champions. And... Uh, And then later on, uh, now, Donovan was part of the 2005 team, so you could argue he sort of bridges the two eras. But there's this way more glamorous era when they won three MLS Cups in four years that we think of as a Donovan Beckham, Robbie Keane era. And so do you feel like that first iteration of the Galaxy gets short shrift that when we think of the Galaxy being this great, successful franchise, we immediately now
1: go to the Donovan Beckham Keane days? We do. And that's okay. I have no problem with that. And I will readily admit that that era certainly had a bigger impact. And therefore, the players that were responsible, and not solely, but largely responsible when we're talking about uh, Landon Donovan, uh, David Beckham, and and Robbie Keane absolutely deserve that type of credit and deserve that type of recognition, even if we're talking about uh, talking about statues. But I, I just think that Being the original and starting something, there is something even more so. Because I think Kobe, just for his accomplishments and what he was, is justified in being the first. But then you also add the fact that he was there from the start. He played in the very first game that ever occurred. That, to me, is there is a value to that. Even more so than uh, than others, I just think, like I said, I think it was a missed opportunity at the time. This happened, you know, when when they decided to do the David Beckham uh, statue. It, it was a missed opportunity at the time, and it just, you know, Kobe was there, and as I said, I, I know I'm, you know, he's he is a man uh, of class, and he is a man of respect, more so probably than me and others. Um, and I'm sure he said all the right things, but I gotta feel that in the back of his mind, he's thinking this is not. Quite right, and maybe he won't say it, but 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 I will say it, and I don't. This isn't, you know, this isn't uh, this isn't a protest or anything like that. I just think that it 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 was it's a little tone deaf uh, if if you ask me. But once again, to your point, I'm common, I'm coming. Uh, you know, I'm certainly of that older class and um, and of that older school and maybe it gives me perspective and history, but it also means that that I can that I can see the impact and the value and maybe I'm being overly sensitive. Uh, and maybe as time moves on and we get older and things change, I like a lot of people hold dear to those things and want to make sure that they are, you know, as I said respected and revered and given, the attention that they deserve, because Landon Donovan having a statue at the Los Angeles Galaxy Stadium or David Beckham, for that matter, having a statue at the Los Angeles Galaxy Stadium doesn't happen without the likes of Kobe Jones. And so I think that, for me, is what would be represented in a Kobe Jones statue. And I think that that ultimately is worth celebrating and should have been the first.
2: I've noticed in general, as MLS hits these milestones of 25 years, and invariably, people start to make lists of greatest players ever and all-time best 11s. Uh, Taylor Twelman gets bent out of shape about this as well. I know you do. Uh, when the early guys aren't given enough recognition, the, the pioneers, the people that were there in the beginning and helped build the league, I know
1: you always sort of ride for those types of guys. Huh? I do, but I also… I make a point of saying that that I, you know me personally, and I, and I, I don't want to speak for my generation, but the way I look at it is the fact that they don't understand or know uh, or have any context or perspective is actually a good thing, okay? Because it means we have moved on, we have progressed, we have evolved. I, li- I love the fact that there are people that, that, that wake up uh, and either that are soccer fans or soccer players and they live in a completely different world than when Kobe Jones was stepping on the field in 1996 or when I was running around back in the 1900s. That's a, you know, that's a good thing. But this is about respect. This is about reverence. This is about tradition. This is about history. And if you're gonna do that, then fine. Then it's opened up, and you 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 better acknowledge what came before, if that's the conversation that we're having, and that is the conversation that we're having when it talks when we talk about statues. I mean, statues are there to remind people of the past. Statues are there to represent something that you hope was either carried on or even started, um, or you hope is continuing and is and is held dear um into the future and that manifestation in the form of a statue is a consistent reminder to the work that went that, that went before um and you know the the promise of the future if you will not to get too romantic about it
2: now this statue was unveiled before in el Tráfico, the galaxy played lafc do you want to transition to that
1: game absolutely let's uh let's take a real quick through uh trip through uh MLS land.
2: Well, it finished 1-1, a result that didn't do either team uh, much good. I'll get to the playoff races in a minute, but this game was a little bit marred by what took place in the stands. There were a whole lot of fights. The same thing happened when the two teams met in late October. and I'm sorry, late August. Um, and there's been a lot of conversation the last few days about the fact that, look, uh, a lot of MLS rivalries are manufactured. This one isn't. This one is really hit, and there's some genuine antipathy there. And that's a good thing. But uh, do we need to be careful that it doesn't go overboard? There are aspects of European and South American football and culture that I don't think MLS should be emulating. And were you concerned by the reports and some of the images we saw in the stands of this much fighting between fans?
1: Look, a a rivalry is not relative uh, when it comes to authenticity or being genuine or 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 true or real relative to the violence that occurs. Um, it's it's dumb. I, I like to think that it's something that we have been able to, to to throw out if it ever existed at all, uh, or to bypass as much as we possibly can, as we have manufactured our version of the game. And you know the the the, the traditional problems uh, that have existed around the world when it comes to violence, either you know during the game, before the game, after the game, and especially when it comes to supporters groups. Uh, you know we have, for the most part manage to avoid. And if 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 in any way we see that there are individuals or uh, or groups or organized groups that are equating their bad behavior with being authentic, you got to nip that in the bud, my friend. You got to make sure that you stamp that down and everybody understands and not only police themselves, but from the outside it has to be made crystal clear that that shit doesn't fly, okay? That's not who we are as American soccer community members, okay? And it doesn't mean you can't be passionate. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't be vocal. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't be antagonistic uh, as, as as fans and as supporters, especially in, you know, a major derby rivalry, whatever you want to call it like this, when it comes to uh, El Trafico. And we're all yeah, yeah, we're all in the same city, and yeah, we all take different sides when it comes to our sports teams. But you know that's, uh, it was disappointing and and it, and sad to see. You know, you also have thousands and thousands of people coming together at different times uh, in big groups, especially after we've been cooped up for the last couple of years. Uh, I'm sure alcohol is involved at different points, and you know, there's no accounting for assholes out there. And so uh, you can use that on a T-shirt if you'd like, Mossy, you can hashtag that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, it was disappointing to see. Um, and who knows, maybe it was a reflection on the, the drab, dull game that actually was El Trafico. Unfortunately, it did not live up uh, to the hype when it comes to what happened on the field. And either, for both of these teams are, are struggling right now and just gasping at trying to get to the finish line that is the uh, playoff line and then seeing where they are when that happens.
2: And, and the playoff races are, are wild right now. You look at the East. Uh, New England have clinched first place. Uh, Nashville are probably okay. But third through eighth are separated by three points. You have Philadelphia, Orlando, D.C., NYCFC, Montreal holding the final spot, and then Atlanta are in eighth place, one point below the playoff line. And NYCFC, a team that was near the top of the standings, a team that at one point this season was number one in your power rankings, uh, they've been shut out in the last three games They're all the way down to sixth, just one point above the playoff line. Uh, Let's start there. I mean, how amazing would it be if that team didn't make the playoffs?
1: Well, let's see what uh, what's that uh, phrase they have? Uh, they've gone off the boil or whatever. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's it's not good. They're not able to put the ball on the back of the net. I still think that they're a quality team, but to your point. You know this is this is good. I mean, this is this is what Major League Soccer is when it comes to the, the the parody and the manufactured parody. It's that it is a race to the end here. And I know they've let New England go, and I think there is an element from a psychological perspective where people said, "Look, nobody's catching New England, so just let them go and do it. Do what you have to uh, uh, do. What you have to do." And you know that is that is on display here. And you know as we say each and every time, that music's going to stop, and it's going to be some really really interesting things happen, and some teams that we may didn't think uh, would be in trouble sitting underneath that line uh, looking up. You know, Atlanta is at 39 here. And so now as we get in these next couple of games here, you know, as as everybody gets down five games left, whatever it ends up being five, six games left that people have man, oh man, you, if you don't bring it, uh, then you not only risk not making the playoffs, but once again, that is the, uh, you know, what we use to define good and bad. And if you have a bad last three or four games uh, because of the parity that exists, it could be uh, big problems. There's a little bit more separation when it comes to uh, uh, when it comes to the West, but they're still jockeying for positions, uh, and they're jockeying for home field advantage and possible home games, and obviously jockeying to see who they are going to play. And you know you have to do everything in your power to give yourself. The pathway of least resistance when it comes to a a playoff type of situation and yes there is new hope but the things that you do right now as you said time and time again they will matter and they will show up in different ways uh when it comes to those playoffs
2: yeah in the west i would say the top four safe uh, but then uh, five through eight are separated by just two points. That's Real Salt Lake, the Galaxy, Minnesota hold the final spot. And then Vancouver on the outside looking in. But the Galaxy now winless in nine in sixth place, just two points above the playoff line. This is trending towards them missing the playoffs again, which would be really disappointing the way they started the campaign.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that disappointment, I it would be disappointing. I don't uh, disappointment, but I don't think it's... I don't think it's a Greg Vanny out type of situation. I think, you know, this is a work in progress, and I think that they will hang their hat on the fact that this was a better year and they showed glimpses, even though, you know, they, it was massive types of change. And so I, I don't think that Greg Vanney's really going to be judged ultimately until next year. And maybe, maybe if you asked him, he knew that they were kind of flying above their, <laughs> above their altitude at times during this year. And now they've kind of come down, uh, to, uh, to rest and it's going to be a race in for, uh, for them, as you said, you know, the loons sitting at 38 Vancouver, which has really come on strong here, uh, sitting at 37, right underneath the playoff line. And then we mentioned LAFC at, uh, at 34. So all sorts of crap could happen here.
2: And I continue to say, look, hats off to New England. Incredible season. They're going to win the Supporters' Shield. They've got a good chance to break the single-season points record. But if Seattle get... Nico Lodero and Jordan Morris back before the playoffs and they're in reasonably good form, then they're the clear favorites to win it. Even without those guys, they're more than capable. They showed that again uh, this past week uh, with that 3-0 win over Colorado, which I thought was very impressive. My boy Juan Paulo scoring one of the goals of the season, a Maradona against England type of run. So uh, Seattle on top of the West and continuing to look very strong.
1: All right. Anything else uh, MLS-wise, Masi? I know uh, a lot of people want us to uh, get going towards uh, World Cup qualifying here. And and once again, we're coming to you late this week. So we just wanted to make sure that we at least touched on the stuff that was going on MLS-wise. No, I'm ready to transition to that. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So you want, you want me to start? How do you want to do this? Uh, I mean, I, I am coming to you here from, uh, from Austin, which is the site of the first game when it comes to this U.S. Uh, men's national team. Of these next three games, we know we are in the octagonal, all right, the United States and seven other teams, 14 games home and away. The first window, while from a points perspective um, was acceptable in terms of the five points that they got, and they're sitting Tied for second with two other teams uh, right now. I don't think that Greg Berhalter and company came out of the first window with you know with with glowing um, uh, glowing results and a a real positive type of vibe. So I think that he needs this window. I think this team needs this window. And I actually think that with this window, as I said, here against Jamaica at home, then on Sunday uh, against Panama away, and then returning to the United States to play on Wednesday uh, against Costa Rica in Columbus, um, I think they're going to come out smelling much better both from a point perspective and just in a general play perspective, having been through that first window. What say you, Masi?
2: Yeah, even the people that usually talk up the difficulties of CONCACAF qualifying seem to be recognizing that these three games set up rather well, that this needs to be at least a seven-point week, and there's a good possibility for nine points here. Now, they will be without... Pulisic, Reina, and John Brooks, which again speaks to the fact that we all love to put together our best possible 11s, but this qualifying campaign is going to be a slog. Uh, Greg Burhalter is going to have to make it up as he goes from game to game. He's going to be missing players probably every single game during this campaign. And so yet again here, he has to improvise uh, w- without some key players. But I think there's more than enough quality o- on that roster to, like I said, pick up seven to nine points here.
1: Yeah, it was interesting hearing uh, Tyler Adams talk about how you know because he was he he was the one that famously said we want nine points, and I I loved it, and as a matter of fact. Uh, it, it hurts me a little that he has kind of walked that back in this second window and said, maybe I should have done one game at a time, which is what we're going to do here. Um, and, you know, because I, I, I love that type of bravado and I don't think it's false bravado. And I, I want him to put pressure on himself and his team. But maybe from a strategic perspective, it's better off uh, having that type of uh, mentality going into these uh, these three games. But. I want nine points. I look at these three teams. This is not a good Panama team. Uh, this is not a good Costa Rica team, uh, and this is a Jamaica team that is sitting in last place. Uh, is not going to have all of their uh, all of their players. And obviously, we're playing both two of these games uh, at home, and you should get your uh, your points at home, notwithstanding what happened against Canada in that last window. So, I, I and and once again, I don't think. I don't think that I'm being greedy by saying nine points. And, you know, we talked a lot about uh, in the last couple of pods about, you know, this self-fulfilling prophecy of being on the road and CONCACAF and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there is, as, as you said, plenty of talent when it comes to uh, this national team to get these nine points uh, and certainly to come out smelling better than they did in that last window. A couple of things I think we should probably... Zero in on when it comes to the roster here. Um, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in uh, in the Ask Alexi segment about who's here, who isn't here. But immediately, people, you know, it's about scoring goals, right? And we have moved on from <laughs> Daryl DK as being the savior to uh, Ricardo Pepe, the FC Dallas player, as being the savior. What do you think that Greg Burhalter does? I mean, I know there's going to be rotation, but the rotation thing, even for me, and I, I digress a little bit here, you know, just Play your best team, okay. Play your best players in all three games. In all three games, play your best damn players. All right, um, Ricardo Pepe, Do you think that that Greg goes with the you know the the, the, the hot hand, the eighteen year old Ricardo Pepe? Because keep in mind that his guy Jassy Zardes, we know it's his favorite, is now back in camp, and Jassy Zardes, age thirty years old, what over sixty caps, uh, you know, fourteen goals, fifteen goals, whatever it ends up uh, is for Jassy. Uh, it would not surprise me in the least if Greg Berhalter says, "Listen, Ricardo, um, it was it was not an anomaly, but you know, still, we want to we want to put you in the best position to succeed. And starting you is not necessarily that. Do you think he goes with uh, Pepe, or do you think he uh, puts Zardes in, or somebody else? Because Hoppe is in uh, in for this camp, and and Tim Wea and different people who may play out on the wing. But who do you think he goes with? Uh,
2: that is, for me, the most interesting larger subplot about these three games." Uh, in terms of players. And that is a position where I think he'll rotate. Um, I'd be surprised if either Zardes or Pepe started all three games. I think they'll both get starts here. He'll want to give both an opportunity from the start in different games. So I'm not sure what order he'll go and how he'll manage that, If which one would start two of the games and which the you know, one would start the other. Uh, but uh, I do see both of them getting opportunities here.
1: Okay, let's, uh, let's go uh, to, you know, because you mentioned um, that – Christian Pulisic is not there, uh, Giorena is not there, and th- these are two creative type of players. So yes, that's it, that's not a good thing. But to your point, there's plenty of creativity that can happen here. You know, uh, our friend Matthew Hoppe is uh, is in. Um, I don't necessarily think we're going to see him in that number nine uh, nine position. I think. Greg Berhalter sees him much more as a wide type of uh, player. Be interesting to see him, the now Majorca uh, player, showing up when it comes to the midfield. Uh, Mossy, I think a lot of eyes will be turned to Yunus Musa, who you know the 18 year old who is back with the national team. Not just because he's good, but I, th- I think that he kind of checks a box that was missing in that last window. Do you think it's it, it is such a um, an interesting and valuable addition with Yunus Musa that he goes right back into that midfield?
2: I do. I'm a big fan of his. You know, we talked about the guys that are missing, but there are some players like Chris Richards and Eunice Musa and Timothy Wea, who had to pull out because of an injury last time, who weren't involved in the last set of games, are not going to be, are going to be involved this time around. So, uh, and, and Musa is one I'm definitely looking at. Uh, I'm very intrigued by an Adams McKinney Musa midfield. McKinney obviously being a big story, being back in the fold uh, after what happened, obviously, during the last international break with him. But yeah, uh, to answer your question, uh, Moose is a guy that I think ha- has the quality to start. And it wouldn't surprise me if he started right off the bat here in this first game. Uh,
1: we, we mentioned Tyler Adams. Um, Tyler Adams is back in camp. Shouldn't shouldn't be a uh, surprise to anybody, right? Um, I guess my question to you, Masi, is... Gianluca Busio, okay, he's playing, he's uh, scoring <laughs> uh, over in uh, Serie A for uh, Venezia, do you see him or, or how, how do you see him fitting into this, this team, either in this window or just going forward? How, how good do you think he actually is or valuable?
2: I'm a fan, and he's playing a little bit higher up the field for Venezia than we saw at the Gold Cup, which I think is probably the right spot for him right now—more of an eight, if you will, than a six. So, if Burhalter uses him in that role, I think he can be a very useful player, and definitely deserves to be in the mix here.
1: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sold on him yet, um, but I, but there is something there. I just don't know what it's going to be. Uh, When you go to the, uh, when you look at the back, Mossy, we, we, uh, you know, things have already changed uh, where John Brooks was originally called in and now he's not there. Now, some, given the way that he played in the last window, would look at it as addition by subtraction there. So now you're looking at center backs right now, if you play a back four, let's say, uh, of Walker Zimmerman, um, let's see, uh, Mark McKenzie, Chris Richards, Um, who is very, very interesting uh, there. And then obviously uh, Miles Robinson, who's had a really good uh, year. Of those four there, who do you think he decides to go with? Because I think there's a big call right now to get Chris Richards in. Now keep in mind, Chris Richards has what three caps. He's playing over there in, in Hoffenheim. And I think he has kind of been anointed the heir apparent or the next one when it comes to center backs. And so I think there's a lot of pressure right now on Greg, you know, that Greg Berhalter has a lot of pressure, but there's pressure from the outside and a lot of talk and chatter that he should be the one that's sitting next to Miles Robinson. Who a lot of people I think have put in right now as Penn when it comes to the center backs.
2: Absolutely. I look at Miles Robinson as the U.S.'s number one center back right now, even more so than John Brooks. So in any big game now, it's a question of who's going to partner Miles Robinson if he's available. And yeah, I mean, Walker Zimmerman is the safe choice. Uh, But I would like to see Richard start at least one of these games because he is a young player with a lot of upside. He would be, I suppose, the Ricardo Pepe of that position, the young Mm -hmm. player that we want to see start to get bled in here uh, and given opportunities. So yeah, I like him. And so I think it'll be a combination of Zimmerman and, and, and Richards, but I certainly hope Richard starts at least one of the games
1: you know as we see this progress uh, you know the interesting and i guess the challenge uh, the the challenging thing for greg burhalter is to your point deciding and calculating which games to use as a a breeding ground which games to blood some of these players because you know we're we're in the we're in the octagon I mean this is it this is f- to qualify for the world cup and yet you're not going to have a lot of opportunities and so you have to really balance uh, and find the correct moment to put them in because you you understand that without that experience and with that youth there are going to be mistakes and what if those mistakes are the ones that keep you from getting those points that ultimately qualify you for uh, for a world cup and that's why i think to your point there will be rotation and i think there'll be strategic types of elevens in all three of these games
2: and we all think matt turner is now the number 1 in goal but uh, greg burhalter hasn't as far as I've seen, hasn't said that publicly Please. So it's still going to be interesting to see how he handles that because he has Zach Steffen available. So even that position is kind of interesting. Is there going to be any sort of rotation there or no? Uh, Turner starts all three games for you. He's the no doubt about it starter right now.
1: Well, you know my feelings. I I, I hate rotating <laughs> goalkeepers. I hope it doesn't happen. But I, you know, this is, again, where the the mental part of this comes into play. Matt Turner is the number one. Okay. I don't think that there's any question right now. And that's not to say that Zach Steffen can't go in there and make great saves and, and be and, and be great but what Matt Turner has done he certainly has earned the start um you know he you know Greg Burhalter might take Matt Turner aside and say listen you're my number 1 okay if we were starting the world cup tomorrow you would be playing and you would be playing every game unless you really screwed up okay but i need and i need to recognize and i need you to recognize the situation that we are in right now you could you know walk off the corner and turn your ankle and I could be—I could have a problem. And so I have to find a way to keep Zach Steffen's mind in it right now. Otherwise, I might lose him. And that's not good for me. And that's not good uh, for the team. And so that I think that there might be that carrot that we see for, for Zach Steffen to, to keep him in um, and bought in on what is going on and not to accept the fact that he is the number two. And I'm not just talking about Competing, but you know, every player can can read the writing on the wall, especially as when it's right in their face. So it wouldn't surprise me also if he changes it. But I I don't know, man. I I don't like changing goalkeepers. And if it means that zach Zach Stefan checks out, all right, fine. But I want I want my best goalkeeper in. And right now it's Matt Turner.
2: Uh you are in Austin for the Jamaica game. Uh Stu Holden is out there
1: as well, correct? Uh, he is possibly coming out here but uh, he didn't come in here today I'm, we're recording this the day before the game so he's possibly coming in uh, on game day so maybe Stu and I'll have a uh, you know a couple beers and go watch this team and figure it out i, I have uh, I've been to Austin before I was actually here to announce the Austin FC team uh, in an official capacity but I have not been to the new stadium and we've only seen it on on television so I'm really excited to see what this is all about and, and to see what this what this city has Become when it comes to uh, to soccer. Uh, Somebody asked me today on Twitter, you know that that evergreen type of question, or you know uh, of should we? uh, And this is this isn't an ask Alexi question. They just asked me, should we only play games in one place? And we've talked about this, and I've answered this before. But you know, you have these 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 communities and these markets and these cities that have come to light and come, you know, come to come to be soccer cities. And they're all different and unique, and they're all huge, and they're all incredibly welcoming and receptive to this game that you wouldn't necessarily associate, or in the past you wouldn't necessarily associate. And it's uh, and it's wonderful to see a place like Austin, and they are already jacked up here about this uh, this opportunity. And that's coming on after of a very, of a failure of a season when it comes to their MLS team. They've already very quickly transitioned. I've seen in the in the streets to say, hey, this is our responsibility. We are hosts here, and we're going to make this a party on and off the field. And that's what they're doing here. So there's a party. I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to be there. What else, uh, Mossy?
2: Tomorrow night, I mean, again, we're taping this on a Wednesday. So I mean, Thursday night, uh, there's another really fun game in the octagonal, Mexico-Canada at the Azteca. In uh, Mexico, before even taking the field for this window, have had reason to celebrate because uh, they finally win one of these battles with the U.S. for a really coveted player. Uh, Julian Araujo uh, will be turning out for El Tri and not the red, white, and blue. Uh, thoughts on that decision?
1: You know, as as always, I'm, I'm actually happy. I'm happy that it, it sounds like, in reading everything, that he took his time and ultimately he searched his soul and his heart. And as I said before, it is a privilege and an honor to represent your country. And in my case, to represent what I feel is the greatest country in the world, which is the United States. And you need to be sure and you need to feel something more than just the game. When you put on that shirt, when you put your hand over your heart and when you sing that anthem. And if you don't, you're just a mercenary and we are going to win some. We are going to lose some. And the ones that we lose. It's not even necessarily because we didn't do everything. I, I, I'm fully confident. And if you read the articles that Julian Araujo, who, by the way, is a talent. Absolutely. I, arguably, for me, the most talented player in this Los Angeles Galaxy team that we have right now. So this is, this is a loss in that we don't have a talented player playing for us. But if it's not in his heart, then it's not really a loss. okay? Uh, because I don't want somebody being a mercenary. I don't want somebody doing it simply because they feel that's better for them. I want them to feel something in their heart, and this is what his heart told them. And so I'm, I'm happy for him. I wish him luck. I can't wait to kick his ass if and when he's on the t- on the field with El Tree. And uh, more power to him. And go go forth and do, uh, do what you are you are going to do. Um, I, I do like I said. I do feel that you know whether it's Greg Berhalter. Or Ernie Stewart or, or, or Brian McBride, they all recognize that this was a talent. They all recognize that there is a recruitment element, much more so than it ever has been when it comes to, in particular, the United States uh, national team, and that is part of doing your job. But it's not begging, all right? You shouldn't, you shouldn't have to beg somebody to represent your country. And I don't want that type of player on a team. Yes, you lay it out. And yes, you lay out the case. And I'm sure that was done. And I'm sure Tata Martino and company over there for L3 did it too. And, you know, we'll see. Let the chips fall where they may.
2: It is crazy, this unique dynamic between these two countries. I mean, I follow, obviously, a lot of Michigan football and basketball recruiting, and I never thought I'd be reading international soccer articles that read just the same as far as (laughs) uh, your pursuit of a player. Uh, But I will say the U.S. is at a place right now where... Even losing some of these battles is cause for U.S. fans to kind of puff their chest out because they interpret it as him being afraid of the competition uh, with the U.S. talent pool and actually viewing Mexico as there being a, sh- a easier path towards playing time. So, uh, so you know, U.S. fans feeling pretty good about their depth. Now, if they had lost Ricardo Pepe, that would have been significant because that's a position where U.S. fans don't feel that great about the other options. So they, they won the battle they needed to recently here.
1: All right, Mossy, it's going to be a crazy week uh, for this U.S. team and in the octagonal, and we'll see where Greg Berhalter and company Are when it's all said and done, uh, I will give you my report from Austin um, and let you know how it was during the game and leading up to the game and after the game. I'm have a good time here. I'm so excited to be here. I got my red, white, and blue. Um, I think that I have tickets with the American Outlaws if they will have me. I promise to behave myself. Uh, So that's going to be a fun a fun way to watch a team that obviously is near and dear uh, to my to my heart. But a lot of questions, a lot of questions in terms of the personnel, a lot of questions in terms of the lineup. And as I said before, after these three games, I expect, and it, 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 from a Greg Berhalter perspective, it probably better be that we are viewing this team and viewing Greg Berhalter in a much more favorable light. And to your point, Mossy, these are three opponents, uh, whether it's home or away, that the U.S. absolutely should step on the field. And when that whistle blows, expect to get three points. And I know the gods sometimes have different uh, ideas and the con- and CONCACAF can be crazy, but there is absolutely nine points for the taking here in this, uh, in this window. We'll see how many of those points uh, this U.S. team uh, gets. All right, we're going to take a real quick break here, Mossy. And when we come back, we are going to, speaking of quick, we're going to take a real quick lap around Europe and just kind of button up what happened over the last week uh, because there was some craziness. Don't go anywhere. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner?
2: Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
1: All right, we're back. Uh, Mossy, let's take a real quick uh, jaunt around Europe and all the stuff that happened there and just pick up, uh, pick a few things because I know it's a little late. It's been talked about, but I know you wanted to mention a few things out there because there was some craziness.
2: Well, first off, I just wanted to get this sheriff story out of the way because... Uh, <laughs> When you think about contemporary European club football there's not not a lot of Cinderella stories. We're living in this super club era where Brad Pitt usually gets the girl. And so when you see a result like that Sheriff beating Real Madrid in the Champions League you think, "Oh, there you go, finally it's something for the romantics to celebrate." But man, when you peel back the layers of the story, you find it Even sheriff have a bit of a super clubby aspect to them. Uh, For people that don't know the story, they're from Moldova. Moldova was part of the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union broke up, Moldova became an independent country. But within Moldova, there's a city, Transnistria, which is populated by a lot of Russians, and they still want to stay connected to Russia. And so they've declared themselves an independent state. They have their own government, their own currency, their own army. And yet they're not recognized by anyone else in the world. So they're known as a country that doesn't exist. And because they're not recognized, they, they this team Sheriff that's based in that city, they still play in the Moldovan League. And they're funded by these Russian oligarchs who have poured lots of money into the club, way more than their domestic rivals. So they completely dominate the Moldovan League. They've won it like 17 of the last 19 years. They're, like I said, they're basically like a Bayern Munich of Moldova. And they've competed in the Europa League. This is the first time they made it to the, to the Champions League group stage. They beat Shakhtar match they won. Now they beat Real Madrid. Uh, but there's also a lot of rumors of corruption and people that feel like this club is being used uh, as part of a money laundering scheme by these oligarchs. So even something that's <laughs> ostensibly supposed to be a Cinderella story is shrouded in all this negative stuff.
1: Oh my, God. nothing is ever as it seems, Mossy. We, we can't just have a nice Cinderella story when it comes to soccer. There's always got to be something sorted behind the scenes. And you're absolutely right. So when this whole sheriff thing uh, broke, and especially beating Real Madrid, and especially coming on the heels of the Super League and all that kind of stuff, everybody started to look into it a little bit more. And on the surface, it was a great story. And then when you get into it, it's, uh, you know... Cinderella has been around (laughs) and, (laughs) and, uh, and, and, but, you know, still a a wonderful accomplishment for that team and, you know, continues to highlight some of the problems when it comes to Real Madrid and obviously La Liga and the two big teams when it comes to Barcelona uh, and Real Madrid.
2: Absolutely. Now the, the big game uh, match they threw the Champions League was PSG Manchester City. Uh, I I mentioned going in that PSG had had an awkward start to the campaign. This was either going to be the game where they were going to click and have this great victory and it was going to launch their season, or they were going to struggle, have a negative result, and it was going to set off a crisis. Now, they won 2-0, and Messi scored a great goal. So you think, okay, I guess it's more towards the launching their season. But if you watch the game, it still felt very disjointed. I didn't love the performance. I felt like City was the better team for large portions of that game. Very unlucky not to score. There was an incredible sequence in the first half in which Raheem. Sterling and Bernardo Silva both hit the crossbar. And so you come out of that game thinking all is not right still in PSG's world. And then that was confirmed at the weekend when they lose 2-0 to Rennes, their first defeat in Ligue 1. And then after that, Mbappe gives this explosive interview where he confirms that he did want to go to Real Madrid this past summer. He asked to be sold and he criticizes PSG for how they handled the whole thing. So who the heck knows what the vibe is going to be around Mbappe now the rest of the season. So uh, again, PSG still have a lot of things to work out. I mean, I know you watched that city game and you couldn't have been impressed by that performance.
1: Yeah, yeah. To your point, it doesn't look like a team. It looks like a you know bunch of really, really good players that don't quite know how they fit together. And you know, that's, that's the charge right now. And you know, the Mbappe thing was was very strange now because it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily serve him or anybody else to, to, to do that. And I would think it only breeds contempt, if you will. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what this PSG team is, but if you can not be great and still win and not only beat somebody, but beat one of the great teams in the world, then there's still something, there's something there. So yeah, I mean, I'm not, but you know, to your point, it did, they did not kick on in League 1, but as I said before, the only time we really pay attention to PSG is in the Champions League. I mean, if if PSG has a game in, in Ligue 1, does it really happen?
2: No, that's true, yeah. But let me say this about PSG. I am very concerned about Neymar. He, we might be seeing the beginnings of a Ronaldinho-like decline here. I don't want to overreact, but he looks very sluggish. He's lost his burst. He's not dribbling past defenders like he used to. The excuse early on this season was that he was overweight. He let himself go in the summer, partied too much in Ibiza, and so he needed to work that weight off. But he's now been training for over a month. He looks fine physically. He's back to his ideal playing weight, it, it looks like. And yet he's still kind of slow and sluggish, like I said, and he's lost that explosiveness. And man, he loses that, and and it's over. And I, I, you know, the Brazil now we've got three games coming up. He's suspended for the one uh, Thursday night against Venezuela, but then he'd be available for Sunday away to Colombia, and then the following week home to Uruguay. Those are two big games where Brazil would need him at his at its his best to be able to win. And I'm going to be looking at him very closely because I'm very concerned by what I've seen from him so far this season.
1: Ooh, wow!
2: Yeah. All right, yeah.
1: interesting, interesting. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go go ahead. Let's let's move on. Well, the, uh, we flip get that, the flip side of that,
2: the flip side of that PSG Manchester City game was City, who then followed that up with a two-two draw away to liverpool which listen nothing wrong with that they, they had two straight premier league games away to chelsea away to liverpool and claimed four points out of six so uh actually it was a pretty good week for them uh, on the premier league front they did lose the psg in the champions league but again if you look closely this week you see the pitfalls of playing without a striker uh, a the fact that they didn't score in that psg game with all the possession they had and then b the fact that they had nothing to show for that incredible first half Against Liverpool, where they played Liverpool off the field, uh, but it was still nil-nil at the break, and Liverpool actually ended up taking the lead in the second half. City did well to rally twice to get a point, but but still, you see in these games that this issue they're having of not not having a center forward.
1: All right, well, get a get a center forward then. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean once it, I mean, look, you know who would get a center forward immediately? They wouldn't even mess around, Sheriff. <laughs> Uh,
2: the flip side of that Liverpool City game is uh, Mo Salah, who had scored twice in their Champions League win over Porto, 5-1, then turns around another fantastic performance in the two two draw uh, against City. A lot of people think he's the most informed player in the world right now. He's playing as well as anybody. I know you've always been a big fan of his, but I mean, you have to be enamored with his form at, at, right now.
1: It's, it's, it's incredible because, you know, again, to your point, there was a time where he was arguably the best player in the world playing. Okay. And you know, everybody has ups, ups and downs and he, he's just incredible. The stuff that he does, the, the ability to beat players one-on-one, the cutting in and not, and not just one player, multiple players, his, his control of the ball. And the first thing that he wants to do is just go. It's just, he's a fun player to watch. He always has been a fun player to watch. And when he is physically uh, at the top of his game uh, mentally, it looks like he's at the top of this game this is a player that's worth the price of admission. Uh, I'm not I saying anything, say that, that anything anybody else doesn't know.
2: Whenever somebody like Salah scores a great goal, like he did against city. Invariably I hear people say, Oh, if that was messy, it would have been replayed, uh, all around the world. The implication being that if it's messy, we make a bigger deal out of it. I disagree. I think it's the opposite. We're so used to Messi's greatness that there are goals he scores that we don't even yeah. make a big deal about anymore that if any other player scored them, we'd flip out. So I actually think it's a complete inverse of the way people try to portray that. But
1: Don't don't worry. Mo Salah is getting plenty of love. All right? Don't worry about that.
2: Uh, next up, you, you mentioned La Liga sides struggling. So Barcelona... Uh, got thumped by Benfica in the Champions League 3-0. Everybody thought Ronald Koeman was dead man walking after that game, but Barcelona kind of crunched the numbers. First of all, it doesn't seem like they could convince anybody to even coach this team. All the guys that have been mentioned, like Xavi and Roberto Martinez and Marcelo Gallardo, have distanced themselves from the job, and they don't even have the money to pay off Koeman if they wanted to fire him. So... Uh, they ended up having to come out and sheepishly admit like, no, we're going to have to stick with this guy for now. They turn around and lose again at the weekend to Atlético Madrid 2-0. So Barcelona, all sorts of problems there, but it looks like it's going to be Ronald Koeman for the foreseeable future because they don't have the wherewithal to change managers.
1: I mean, is it really the fact, I mean, that Barcelona, from a financial perspective, can't fire their manager? (laughs) I mean, is that where we're, is that what they have become? Uh, What's what's less than a a, a, club, (laughs) like, menos de un club, right? I mean, good God.
2: And, and two Atletico Madrid notes, uh, Luis Suarez is still very salty about the way that Barcelona got rid of him. It was an awkwardly brief phone call from Ronald Coyman. So he scored in this game. He made sure to do like the phone call celebration, which everybody <laughs> knew what it was in reference to. And then Joan Felix was absolutely phenomenal in this game. I'm a huge fan of his. Um, I, I know he's been inconsistent the last couple of years. I put that down to Simeone, aka Leroy Horde, not knowing how to use him, but he's so talented that that talent, even with a manager like Simeone, still shines through sometimes. And this was one of those games where he was phenomenal. And then uh, last uh, big picture point here, uh, Manchester United. So they beat Villarreal in the Champions League with a 95th minute Cristiano Ronaldo winner. But then at the weekend against Everton, Solskjaer decides to leave him on the bench and Paul Pogba as well. He felt like both those guys needed rest. Ronaldo had started every game since he arrived And uh, they ended up tying 1-1, dropping two points. Ronaldo came on in the second half but was very unhappy at the end of the game. And it's triggered all this discussion. Did Solskjaer get it right? Uh, Does he need to be worrying about Ronaldo's fitness? Shouldn't Ronaldo be the one to tell him when he needs a rest? Ronaldo clearly wanted to start this game. And so... That It's raised some questions about how Sochar is going to manage him, and he's getting up there in age, but does Sochar have the clout to leave him out of games throughout the season that he wants to play in? That, that's going to be somewhat awkward. I mean,
1: are we at the point where Cristiano Ronaldo is a luxury player? I mean, the, the, the dude, he wants to play. He's a player. He wants to be on the field. He has the physical attributes, certainly, to be able to do that. We're early days when it comes to the season. I mean, again, it just... And I and I I don't I I'm trying not to sound grumpy. I'm not trying not to 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 be that guy. But you know, I mean, the I never met a player that would rather train. Uh, I, I take it back. I never met a good player that would rather train or would or would rather sit out a game than play a game. I mean, it it doesn't. In my little brain, that does not compute. And yes, sometimes you have to protect players from themselves. I I get that players playing through pain, players doing things that maybe in the short term are good, but in the long term aren't players that are making an injury worse by pushing through something like that. But that's not that's not the case here. I think we have we have we have gone so far on the side of a rotation and fear and look i i'm sure there's data that that they are provided that that that, that come into play when they are making these uh these decisions okay that's uh, that's fine but i just think it for a guy that, that i don't think can afford to look like he's overthinking it or making mistakes, I just don't think it was a good look, especially with the uh, with the result. And then to have the player <laughs> uh, make a point of it, it makes it look even worse for Ole.
2: Uh, on the American front, I mentioned Gianluca Buzio scored his first Serie A goal. He got a stoppage time equalizer for Venezia against Cagliari. And uh, Joe Scali, a player we're going to talk about in the Ask Alexi segment, uh, he scored a stoppage time goal for Gladbach against Wolfsburg, and their win there. Um, On the international front, uh, very tasty Final Four in the UEFA Nations League. Italy and Spain are playing in one semifinal as we speak. Uh, Perhaps Luis Aguilar can can text us the score since I don't have a screen anywhere with that game on. Uh, And then tomorrow, it will be Belgium-France in the other semifinal. Uh, The winners then meet Sunday at the San Siro. So, some great games to look forward to there. And then I do want to finish up, uh, if you'll indulge me, uh, with, uh, some South American club football, just put a ribbon on the semifinals of the two club competitions. Um, it ended up being a clean sweep of Brazilian clubs. So the Libertadores, it'll be, Oh, uh, two nil Spain. So they're getting some revenge for that Euro mm. semifinal ouster. Um, uh, so in the Copa Libertadores final, it will be Flamengo against Palmeiras. In the Sudamericana final, it will be Red Bull Bragantino against Atlético Paranaense. Uh, a couple of big picture uh, uh, bullet points here. Uh, first of all, uh, Brazilian clubs have right now an enormous financial advantage over everybody else. And so there's concern that they might start dominating these competitions to an unhealthy degree. There's been a lot of conversation the last few days about uh, in South American footballing circles, do you need a salary cap? Do you need to strengthen financial fair play rules? Do you need to reduce the number of Brazilian clubs? There could be nine in the Libertadores next year, which would be insane. Uh, so that bears watching over the next couple of years, whether this becomes a trend. And the interesting thing is every article that Tim Vickery writes about this phenomenon and the gap that's open between Brazil and everybody else, he always cites MLS as a major reason, the fact that MLS is pillaging these other South American countries, but Brazil, not as much. So it's kind of interesting that MLS interesting. has worked its way into that conversation.
1: Interesting. So, okay, because the, the MLS is, has not pillaged Brazil in the it's way that the they've gone degree. to Colombia and Argentina and that. Okay. Interesting. Interesting.
2: All right. Anything That's else? Well, well, and then and then finally, on one point on the
1: Sudamericano final, uh,
2: I mentioned it's Red Bull Bragantino. Uh, Red Bull have long wanted to crack the South American market. They purchased this club Bragantino in 2019 when they were in the second division, kind of a nothing club. And it's been an impressive rise. They've done what Red Bull does. They've poured money into it, but in a smart way. Signed a lot of young players. They 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 won the second division that year, got promoted. They're near the top of the Brasileiro standings this year, and off to their first uh, continental final. They have this really promising young manager Mauricio Barbieri, who's been nicknamed the Brazilian Nagelsmann, and I joked recently that uh, the New York Red Bulls had become the Fredo of this Red Bull family and uh, there's some truth to it. I do wonder with uh, the other three clubs, Leipzig, Leipzig Salzburg, and Bragantino, all humming. Uh, where did the New York Red Bulls fall in that pecking order right now? You also got Max Verstappen in this eyeball-to-eyeball race with Lewis Hamilton for the Formula One crown. So there's a lot going on in the Red Bulls sporting universe, and I do wonder where the New York Red Bulls fit into all that. So it's-
1: well, it's it's also a little apples to oranges <laughs> when you compare the structures of some of these uh, leagues. But I, I I get your point. Uh, and 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 if you already feel like the redheaded step stepchild as the New York <laughs> Red Bulls, uh, and I am a redheaded stepchild, so I'm uh, I'm able to say that. Um, then you probably even more so when you when you find out that you are way down in the pecking order, even of the other <laughs> satellites that are out there. All right, good Mustang. That is it. All right, that was a real quick uh, trip around, and we appreciate you indulging us, but there was a lot of stuff there that we just wanted to kind of uh, point out. All right, we're gonna take another quick break. And when we come back, oh yeah, it's time for Axe, Axe, Axe? It's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news, All right, we are back and it's time for Ask Alexi. You know that moment when you send in your questions, either on, I guess at this point, it's a more traditional type of social media, your Twitters and your Instagrams and your Facebooks and stuff like that. If Facebook is still up, I don't know as of this uh, record, Um, or you can call us. As you know, we have our State of the Union uh, hotline 657-549-2297. 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. And if you do uh, use the social media out there, um use that hashtag ask Alexi, as some people have this week. What do we have this week, Masi?
2: First up, at uh just Hendricks asks: biggest USMNT roster snub.
1: Ooh, okay. So let's see some options here. I, I, you know, so so first off, I just want to say in general this is a good moment. This is a good thing that there is um, consternation and, or anger out there about the roster that Greg Berhalter picked for this national team. What it actually says is that we got a lot of talent out there and a lot of depth. And I know it's relative for the most part to the amount of talent that is playing in Europe. Uh, But the reality is that this, this roster does not pick itself, um, and that's a you know that's a that's a good thing. That is evolution. That is uh, that is progress. And so, each and every camp, when that roster hits, everybody debates and screams and yells about different things. And why wasn't this person in? And why wasn't this person in? And we know that you know it, it is it is not a meritocracy. Um, it is. One man, in this case, Greg Berholter, and certainly his staff, but it's ultimately his decision and his subjective analysis of what he feels is the best group of players. And as always, it's not the best players, it's the best group of players. Having said all that, I think there was a lot of screaming and yelling when it came to uh, uh over there because he's you know, playing, scoring, scoring in Europe, uh, and he's a goal scorer. Uh, and at this point, even notwithstanding, you know, what uh, Pepe has done, the U.S. is looking for a goal score. And so that Jordan Pifak was not called in. There's some people that are talking about that, um, you know, given some of the challenges. And certainly when uh, Brooks went back and Matt Miazga, who is starting and playing in La Liga, uh, there was some question about him. And we've seen Matt Miazga, so we know what type of player he is. but you know, maybe people feel he's in a different position. Um, let's see, Conrad De La Fuente, uh, these types of players that have been kind of in and out and been talked about. Uh, and then, you know, I think where a lot of the question marks uh, were and the eyebrows raised were, was when it comes to uh, Joe Scally, who at this point is, you know, 18 years old. He is uh, out of the uh, NYCFC <clears throat> uh, team and an academy uh, it, uh uh, for for major League Soccer, he is you know burst on the scene when it comes to uh, Munchen Gladbach, and you know he benefited from some injuries. he can play both sides of that back line right in the left and so I think there was a lot of people that said, why isn't this player being called in? So when I think about I guess the biggest snub, hmm, I would probably go with uh, PFOC only in that we have already seen him this year. He's a goal scorer, he's he is scoring or has scored. And I'm look, I'm not saying he's burning down the house and that he's starting every game and playing every single minute, but in this current climate where we are desperate for somebody and we're still, you know, jury is still out when it comes to uh, someone like uh, Ricardo Pepe, I think he would be the biggest snub although a lot of people will will wonder why Scalia uh, hasn't been called in including our friend uh, Grant Wall who I think on Twitter even offered to to pay his trip when uh uh, when uh, when the possibility of bringing more players was uh was talked about so Joe Scally certainly is up there but I'd, I'd go with P what about you mossy any you anybody stand out to you
2: I wouldn't call him a snub per se but I'm curious to see when DK is going to be brought back into the fold uh, we yep. were so excited about him in the summer obviously he was disappointing in the gold cup And so I think Greg Berhalter wants to give him some time with his club to kind of get in the the rhythm again. And I get that, but I still think he's a player with enormous promise. So I hope he's brought back into the mix here eventually.
1: I don't know. I mean, I don't think that he necessarily has played himself out of contention and that he's back playing and playing well and scoring some goals MLS wise. I think that helps, but I just don't think that. I mean, it wasn't for lack of trying and opportunities, and he just never really took it, and that can that can rub coaches and uh, coaching staffs the wrong way. Uh, what else, Massey?
2: Um, at Alan Ree one or Alan R1 okay. um, asks uh, Premier League deal with Ted Lasso. Maybe the show is about soccer.
1: All right. So I think what he's referring to is this new licensing agreement. Um, I think it's worth. Like half a million pounds a year with the EPL. And what does that buy you? Well, that buys you the ability to use footage, uh, to use logos, to use, you know, the uniforms, uh, the league trophy, all of these different things. So that connection and Uh, we haven't gotten to the end of the season, but by this, there's a, I feel like there's a good chance that they are going to get promoted back up to the, uh, the premier league when all is said and done for those of you that are watching the show. And by the way, if you are watching the show, um, the, uh, the, uh, the latest episode, all sorts of cliffhangers right now and, and villainous type of, uh, of moves going on. And for those that are watching, know what I'm talking about. Um, So I'm, I continue to be heading in a much more positive direction when it comes when it comes to the show. This licensing agreement, um, I just think it attests to how it is, Inhabited our culture and consciousness in a way that not just few sports shows, but few sports shows, uh, but few shows have. And there is a value. They recognize that there are not only a lot of people watching this, but there's a lot of soccer people and potential soccer fans out there. And, you know, from the EPL's perspective, this makes complete sense in that they get to Brand themselves all over one of the most popular uh, sh- one of the most popular shows in uh, in the world right now, and so that's uh, yeah, that's that's good business as far as I'm concerned.
2: Uh, my favorite line in the Athletic article about the licensing deal was: "The Athletic understands that previously skeptical Premier League executives have grown to love the show's folksy charm."
1: Well, I I think that. Like everybody, we, that the hesitancy, and we all had it, is that they were going to be laughing at us as opposed to with us. And I think very, very quickly, we were charmed by the fact that, well, first off, that it's much less about soccer than people realize, uh, and at times not even about soccer. And you could certainly make a case that soccer is, is completely peripheral. To, to most of the stuff and the good stuff that happens out there. But more importantly, that when it does come to soccer and whether it's on the field or off the field or just to who soccer people are, and even, even more so who American soccer people are represented uh, and embodied by Ted Lasso to a certain extent, that it is there is a kindness, a goodness, and that they are laughing with us and that we can, therefore, it's okay to laugh at ourselves, whether it's the American soccer public, or as you were mentioning, the EPL folks out there that, you know, they're, they're in charge of guiding this incredibly valuable and powerful <laughs> entity. And they want to associate people that if they are laughing, they're laughing with you. And I think that they recognized, and so maybe that took a little time for them to recognize that, that this is, this is good for them to be associated with. Anyway, anything else here, Mossy?
2: Last question Ad John Q asks, why don't MLS next leagues give the choice of their kids to play school ball?
1: So MLS next, the latest uh, iteration of youth development when it comes to major league soccer. Uh, we remember the, the development Academy uh, that has gone by the wayside and now MLS has picked up the, uh, the slack. There's, MLS teams and also uh, select club teams that are going to be involved with it. And as was the case before with the the Development Academy, you know, the it has come down from on high that you have to choose and you can't do both in terms of high school. I think that there is an element of uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. However. I can see from their perspective, their point. And it's not just about money, okay? Because in a lot of cases here, um, they it, it is there is no pay. There is no money involved. However, um, their job, when I say there, it's MLS Next. And what their mandate is, is to develop soccer players, is to develop better soccer players. And if you are a young soccer player and you are looking to the fastest path to getting better for whatever your dream is in realizing your dream. Maybe it's to play in a World Cup. Maybe it's to be professional. Maybe it's to get a a college soccer uh, scholarship. You have to do what you feel is right and is going to get you there the quickest and easiest way. And. in in more more often than not and the overwhelming majority of answers come out that this is the way to go and part of that is a reflection on the disparity of quality when it comes to high school soccer now look there are wonderful high school soccer programs out there and they will suffer because their players will have to make this choice and there are you know there's plenty of crap high school soccer out there and I think that there is a recognition when it comes to the administrators and the leaders and the coaches that they don't want their players in those types of environments that are going to stunt their growth or regress their development um, if their job as these uh, coaches is to develop them and to give them the best possible chance of success. And As I said… A high school soccer experience, and I know I come at it from a almost at times maybe an antiquated type of view and maybe more romantic type of view, but I do believe that the high school soccer experience can be beneficial, both in terms of your development as a soccer player, but also in terms of your development as as a person, because no matter how hard MLS Next or any type of club soccer situation tries, they will never be able to replicate the Experience of being a high school soccer player, and all of the benefits you get that sometimes have nothing to do with actually kicking the ball. You know the, the the culture and representing your country, and coming to school on game day, and having your student body support you, and all of those different things that are, I think, incredibly beneficial to your growth—not just as a soccer player, but as a young human being. Those go away, and you know it it's it saddens me but maybe that's the way the world is is moving when it comes to development of elite athletes which is ultimately what their responsibility is but i get it and i also get and i see them and talk to them whether it's on social media or in person the incredible work that high school soccer coaches and high school soccer programs do and the impact that they can have and they feel that this is making them poorer, certainly from a soccer perspective, but it's also making them poorer in terms of their program and what they're trying to do. And there's plenty of them that are are churning out great athletes and many that will go on and play Division one college soccer or maybe be professional. but the, unfortunately they are few and far between. And a lot of it has to do, let's be honest, with the disparity in resources that uh, that have. Yes, maybe some have resources and they just have bad coaching or they have bad infrastructure, um, bad resources, uh, you know, okay, fine, but uh, they're not funded well, but the ones that are there, Uh, are great. I hope they stay great. I hope that people recognize the value that comes with being involved with them. The ones that aren't, I hope they get better, but we're certainly not making it any easier on them by having this mandate and having this rule and regulation that is a continuation. It's it's uh, It's not something new, but I do, while I lament it, I have a hard time saying that it should be outlawed outright. So you make your decisions and in anything in life, there are going to be sacrifices that you make. And I guess in this case, if that's the pathway that you want to go and you are willing to make that sacrifice and you feel if you don't make that sacrifice, that that pathway is going to be less assured and you're gonna have less chance of success and ultimately getting to whatever that dream is, then you gotta make that decision. Masi, anything else? That's it. All right, uh, as we say in each, uh, all, all the time, um, please say, use that hashtag. Uh, send it to us, uh, all your questions, comments, and concerns with that Ask Alexi hashtag. And uh, certainly use that hotline, That's 657 549 our hotline, our State of the Union hotline. We're going to take another quick break, and we're coming to the end of our show, and I'll give you my one for the road. Don't go anywhere. All right, we are back. And once again, uh, we apologize for being late this week. Uh, it has been kind of thrown together last minute because of our travel schedules. But uh, thank you for uh, for hanging out with us this week. Do listen to the special podcast with uh, Jen, uh, Jen Cooper that we put out earlier this week, because I think it gives you a real good... Um, cliff notes version, if you will, of some of the craziness that's going on in women's soccer and in particular when it comes to the NWSL and some really serious things uh, that are going on that affect not just women's soccer, but soccer and, uh, and sports in general right now. Uh, so, so check that out. Uh, when it comes to uh, our, our, our schedule next week, uh, we will hopefully be back at our regular scheduled time. But we are at the end of the show and I give you my uh, one for the road when it comes to uh, the end of our show each and every week. And this week, it has to do with a continuation of a story I've kind of been telling over the last uh, month, let's say, and that is my involvement uh, with FIFA. Today is uh, Wednesday, October 6th. I spent much of Tuesday, October 5th on multiple calls of, of multiple hours uh, with the folks at FIFA and as they continue to kind of roll out and let's be honest, try to sell this proposal that Arsene Wenger has through FIFA and Jill Ellis has through FIFA for both the men's and women's game to have World Cups every two years for the calendar to be much more um. Uh, singular in terms of having instead of five windows, but one window and increasing the amount of Youth World Cups, all of that kind of stuff as they continue to to roll this out and to get feedback. What FIFA did over the uh, last couple of days that I was a part of uh, was invite, since all these players, as we've mentioned on this podcast, are in the uh, international window, they are all with their national teams. It it, it was to put out an invite uh, to present their presentation of this to all of the teams. And specifically they sent the uh, letters to the captains of the national teams. And so I was on two different calls, as I said, for multiple hours where it was amazing to see because it, it was hundreds uh, at times of, uh, of players from all over the world that right now are in this window and are with this, you know, w- with their team, some with their teams, some not with their teams. Uh, and You know, playing and living out some of the stuff that we are talking about when it comes to the changes that are being uh, proposed. And as you could have mentioned, and I've been, you know, pretty upfront and honest with you when it comes to a lot of the drama and a lot of the politics that are going on right now as they try to sell this to the world, it's a fundamental change. It's a big change. And the lines were very, very clearly drawn and not surprising uh, in that there was. Kind of the majority and rest of the world that sees this as added opportunity. When I say opportunity, not just opportunity from a player perspective or from a national team perspective, but from a sporting perspective and from a financial perspective that benefits the sports in a lot of these, you know, very small and very needy type of, in a good way, needy type of members when it comes to FIFA. And they look at it as, hey, this is a better chance. This gives us a better chance. And this might bring more revenue that we can then put back into the game that also gives us a better chance. So that type of support was not surprising. There were little, if any, when it came to European countries involved. And you will ask about the US. Yes, the US was involved. Obviously, I was on the call. But more importantly, current players um, led by uh, Christian Pulisic, who I know isn't in camp, but he was on the call, Uh, listening, listening and participating. And I was really, really uh, excited to hear the questions that came and the comments that came. uh, came. And it was a real discussion. And at, at one point, I was asked to speak, and I just reiterate my stance that that these players, take the time, talk to your teammates, talk to your coaches, talk to referees, talk to fans, talk to administrators to get a better idea of what is being proposed here and why. Some people think that it's a good idea. Some people don't think that it's a a good idea. This this story is going to continue on. And as we said, and I've told you before, this doesn't happen uh, unless and until they get buy-in from the big boys and while they are the minority, they are the minority with incredible amount of power and you don't you can't have a World Cup without the likes of Europe and the likes of uh, South America, so we're talking UEFA and Comenable and that's where the real fight, if you will, and that's where the real drama is going to be because of you know, as we said, the power that is going on. Anyway, it's fascinating for me to just be a part of it and to see it all play out and to see all of this, as I said, drama and politics and personal relationships and all the different things play out as they try to lay out this proposal for the world. I don't know where it's going to, uh, it's going to end out, but it was interesting to see so many players look at it, even from a a, a personal perspective, and look at the, the less travel that's involved, uh, especially in real time. Having you know, for many of them, having taken flights across the world to do this, also more opportunity for them to be involved. You know, some of them said, "Look, my my team has never had a chance to even come close to making a World Cup. If this gives me even." A little bit more of a chance to possibly being there to be there. This is something that I uh, that I support, and there were others that rightly pointed out, you know, some of the concerns with having uh, just one window, one international window, or even two international windows. Some concerns about the loss of prestige of, you know, all the things that we have talked about out there. But anyway, I will report back as we go on, as we see where this ultimately uh, uh, shows up and how this uh, how this plays out. But I just wanted. You, to know uh, that this is happening and it's continuing to happen. And those meetings, and now, as you've seen, uh, and as I explained with current players are happening right now, because they're the ones that are ultimately, this is going to affect the most. They're the ones that are going to have to get on those plays and planes and play those games. They are the most component. Let's be honest when this all is, uh, all is said and done, but there will be more presentations to more players. We'll see if it involves the, the people right now that are, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say adamantly, but certainly um, very publicly questioning this and rightfully and fairly so uh, when it comes to Europe and, uh, and to a certain extent, South America, although I think that the, the less so than uh, than Europe and certainly less collectively uh, than Europe. And we'll see where this all ends, because it will it will impact our game. And from a Arsene Wenger and FIFA perspective, they're hoping for the better. But regardless, it's going to impact our game. And these decisions aren't going to be made in a vacuum. Uh, and the more of these types of presentations and the more people are involved. And when I say people, everybody, fans players, administrators, referees, everybody that's going to be involved, the better off it is. So it, it was good to see that these players were involved and that they were engaged in the conversation about fundamental changes to the game that they play and that the game that hopefully is going to nurture and sustain them even after they're kicking the ball for a long time. And these these decisions will matter. All right, Mossy, anything before we go? Uh,
2: yeah, last, last thing. I have a, a restaurant recommendation. Okay. Uh, in New York City. I um, Old Tbilisi Garden uh, on Bleecker Street, Greenwich Village. It's a a Georgian restaurant. Uh, John Strong and Stu Holden recommended it to me. Uh, We ate there for dinner the other night, and, and we all loved it. Huge success. I texted John and Stu afterwards, thanking them for the recommendation. They were very excited that we went there. Um, so, uh, you know, they, John and Stu, they fell in love with Georgian food in the summer of 2018. Yep. And so when they got back to the States that I guess during an MLS, uh, production in New York, they, they, the whole crew went out for dinner and they stumbled upon this Georgian restaurant said, why not? They, they ate there. They liked it. They mentioned it to me. And so, uh, we ate there for dinner a couple nights ago. It was outstanding.
1: Well, I have a dinner scheduled tonight and I'll let you know next week, uh, to a place called Macaladas, Cafe and cantina. I think it's a Mexican restaurant here. And look, everybody, I'm sure at some point uh, in my in my travels here, somebody's going to try to buy me wings. Um, and uh, and certainly, probably there's some barbecue in my uh, in my future. Um, have a wonderful week. We will talk to you again uh, next week. Think good thoughts uh, if you're so inclined when it comes to the U.S. Uh, uh, men's national team as they head off into these next three games. We'll see how it all shapes out uh, on the field for Greg Burhalter and company. I am thinking good thoughts. I am positive. I'm going to get myself a drink and have a good time uh, watching this team that, uh, that I love. We will be back here on the State of the Union pod. Please continue to review and to rate and to download and do all the different things that you do. We really appreciate all that. And once again, give us a call. Give us a call on that hotline, 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297. But you know, you can always get me over there on the Twitter machine and all the uh, social media platforms out there uh, also. Uh, We'll be back next week. Until then, and as always, size the day.